0: This is our first Fifth Sunday intersection. We're going to have a... Uh, I'm loud. Am I too loud? That's not unusual for me. But uh, we're going to have a brief discussion, and then Joseph's going to preach. And this is going to look a little bit different every time we, uh, we do it. And one of the most amazing things is neither one of us sits down very well. <laughs> you true. may have noticed that when we're up here. We're kind of, so this is a miracle in itself. Uh, the first Fifth Sunday intersection question is is the bible and this is appropriate we'll start with scripture is the bible the word of god or the word of man you probably heard that uh, question before and inevitably inevitably when that question comes up two issues come to the fore one science and the other history people will say something like this now wait a minute we live in an age of progress we are modern people Science has proven, using scientific methods, that God doesn't exist, right? Science has proven, using scientific methods, that there's no such things as as miracles. Miracles just don't happen, right? Wrong. (laughs) Science, using its own methods, we need to start with this, don't fall for this. Science, using its own methods, cannot prove that God doesn't exist. Science, using its own methods, cannot prove that miracles don't happen. When somebody comes along and says, I don't believe the Bible because God doesn't exist and miracles can't happen, that is a faith assumption. They're taking that by faith. If somebody comes along with a faith assumption like that, of course, they're not going to give the Bible a fair hearing.
1: We don't even get to the discussion. We don't even get to discovery if we fall for that little trick. The second thing you mentioned is history. And, uh, you know, you look in the back of your Bibles and what do you find? You find something you don't find in the, the back or the front of other holy books. You find maps and lots of them. And I'll tell you why. Because our faith has actually been lived out in history and documented of people, places, things that happened, events that can be verified uh, outside of the Bible. And, uh, you know, you think about the historicity of the scriptures, which distinguishes the Bible from other holy books. You know, we don't realize that one of the ways you can discover, kind of measure the reliability of an ancient manuscript is to discover how early we have toward the writing of those ancient manuscripts, how many we have to see whether it's changed over the years. Um, The Bible just outstrips every other ancient document. In fact, the second most prolific ancient document in terms of manuscripts is Homer's Iliad. You know how many copies we have of Homer's Iliad? We have 600 copies 600 manuscripts you say well that's a lot well that is that's the second largest number the bad thing about it is the oldest one we have is not even within a thousand years of Homer's writing the Iliad and so you know we'd say yes Homer wrote the Iliad here it is you know me you know how many manuscripts that we have and fragments of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament not the entire Bible 22,000 manuscripts it is verifiable to see, and we go all the way back in the New Testament, for instance, to within 15 to 30 years from within the actual events by people who are eyewitnesses, etc. Um, so there is just no comparison historically between the Holy Scriptures, the Bible, and any other ancient manuscript.
0: Yeah, and what about archaeology? Does anybody know? Uh, don't raise your hand. Does anybody know what a Hittite is? Uh, for many years, scholars, literally for hundreds of years, said, look, there's no such thing as a Hittite. Yeah, we see that in the Old Testament, uh, this, this uh, ancient empire. Uh, but there's no archaeological evidence whatsoever for the existence of Hittites. It's a fairy well, tale. <laughs> that's right. Legend. Uh, voila! In the 19th century, late 19th century, century on into the the 20th century, in modern-day Turkey, hundreds of sculptures, temples, clay tablets that prove now, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that there was a great empire of the Hittites. And we we don't have time, but we could go on and on and on. If you're concerned about archaeology, when uh, archaeology makes a new discovery, year after year after year it inevitably supports the historicity and the accuracy of the Bible and it's exciting therefore
1: we're, we're thrilled about archaeology the more they dig up the more we say see I told you so I, mean, I think maybe they're still Hittites I think I have some in my neighborhood actually <laughs> I had one on my neck once <laughs> back
0: here But I'm, uh...
1: you know the, the other thing is that um, the Bible makes claims about different events that happen I don't know if you're aware of this, but there are other sources outside the Bible that corroborate these events. Uh, the reason we have those maps and all these things, it, it, our faith is historical. For instance, uh, in the New Testament, uh, two Roman historians, Josephus and um, Tacitus, both wrote. They were not Christians. Uh, they had no interest in preserving the Christian mm-hmm. faith. They both wrote. And said that there was a man named Jesus. You'll read some of these new atheist books saying there was never a man named Jesus. Well, there are people walking around who weren't even Christians saying, we know for a fact there was a man named Jesus. He was in the the, uh, province of Judea. He actually was crucified by the Romans, something else some of our, our friends today deny. They obviously have not read just secular history, much less biblical history. And the resurrection is mentioned by Tacitus as well, and, and, and by Josephus. In fact, Josephus goes into some, some about the resurrection and some of the major miracles of Jesus. So we say, well, there can't be any miracles. This couldn't have happened. Well, there are people who have no interest in spreading the Christian faith who document these things
0: actually happened. Anybody ever heard of the Da Vinci Code? And behind that, the Gnostic Gospels. And not long ago, there was a Princeton scholar named Elaine Pagels, and she was up at a university north of here that starts with an O. And she was giving a, a lecture on the Gnostic Gospels. And uh, we, we have seen this resurgence of the Gnostic Gospels as, as though these are, these are new things. Remember this. The Gospels, the canonical Gospels, and the Epistles were written shortly after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ... Because there are eyewitnesses. The New Testament, the New Testament cries out for for verification. There are witnesses all over the place that were living that saw Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection, and they're still alive when the Gospels and the Epistles are still being written. And Paul will say, check, check with the eyewitnesses. Check with Alexander and Rufus. Check with a number of the, the 500 that saw Jesus raised from the dead. The new, it's, it's as though the New Testament is crying out, check with the witnesses. These people were alive and nobody, there's no record, no record of any eyewitness ever coming along and saying that's not true. The Gnostic Gospels came 150 to 250 years Later, and they don't cry out <laughs> for verification because they can't be verified; they're not true historically.
1: You know, we've talked a lot about the uh, New Testament, but the Old Testament as well. You can talk to uh, the secular uh, scholars of antiquity, and they will tell you of the accuracy of the Old Testament. They will—they will look at who was king and what was happening when, and, and um, we just have a faith that's historically verified. Uh, one last thing has to do with uh, maybe some, a litmus test about how people would tell the truth. Uh, you know when, sometimes when somebody's a truthful person, when they'll actually say something that is not to their, their betterment just because it's true. In other words, they'll say something that actually will own up to something that will hurt them because they are truth speakers, you know, in the New Testament, and, well, in the Old Testament too, we're focusing a little bit on the crucifixion and resurrection right, right now, but in the New Testament, um, the authors of the New Testament say the most outrageous things about themselves. Hmm. You know, you think, man, if you were trying, you'd make yourself look a little bit better if you were writing a record of this and, you know, you deny Jesus and, and all these horrific things. And then uh, the New Testament just defies the, the cultural norms of the time, I'll give you a great example, is that in the writing of the Old and New Testament, the, the testimony of a woman was not accepted in court. In other words, it, it, you did not bring women into court, it just wasn't accepted. And do you know the, the Gospels, do you know who they record as being the first people to discover the, the resurrection, the empty tomb? Who, who was it? It was Mary? Mary? The, the women, Mary and Mary, and, um, you know, if you were writing, the, if you were making this stuff up, trying to make the strongest argument possible, you would never have women whose testimony don't even count at that time. I'm talking about as they're writing to that culture, not our culture, but that culture. You would never do that because you would be undercutting your case. Do you know why the Scriptures record that women first found Jesus? you know why? Because they did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, at, and, and at great personal cost, if you will, the Bible just tells the truth accurately, historically,
0: and reliably. And over and over and over. Joseph's about to get up and talk about this, but you, here, here's the challenge, and he's going to talk. Read it. It's amazing the way it fits together and eventually focuses on one person. Just, just another point regarding the Old Testament. Think of this. We have right in the center of our Bible 150 prayers. The Psalms. We have a prayer book. And in those Psalms, time after time after time, people are questioning the existence of God. They're questioning the goodness of God. They're questioning the faithfulness of God. That very fact reveals that the Bible is God's word. God's just other gods just don't do that. <laughs> But God has given us a vocabulary for prayer in every hard circumstance and situation to come Come to Him in suffering, in difficulty, in pain, in wonder, and in doubt. And that, again, we could go on and on. That points to the fact that this is, this is real. This is accurate. This is from God.
1: We hadn't even gotten to what the Word of God says about itself and the corroboration of that over 1,500 years of its writing. Uh, there is a lot more we could talk about. In fact, probably in the fall, I'm looking at it, Lee, uh, we're not exactly sure, but we are going to do, Brad is going to be teaching a, 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 a uh, six weeks on the Bible's big picture, and we'll go deeper into these things. But mainly this discussion is to help you see that we have every reason to have strong confidence, even just in the comparison of things uh, out in the world, to have strong confidence in the authenticity and authority of of God's Word. Would you pray for my sermon and then I'll go preach.
0: Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to come and openly and boldly and frankly and um, under your authority, talk about your Word. Lord, we recognize uh, at Highlands, as, as many churches do throughout this community, that we sit under your Word. We don't judge it. And yet, you give us good reasons, good down to earth, practical, reasonable uh, reasons to uh, to trust your word, Lord. We thank you for that. We thank you for accommodating yourself uh, to us, making us, creating us in your image, and communicating us uh, to us, communicating to us your word, w- Lord. We pray that in our church there would be a renewal of love for the Bible, love for the scriptures and a renewed commitment on the part of all of us to read your word uh, because it's a it, it's for us and for our growth and we pray these things in Jesus name.
1: Amen. Amen. Thank you Brad. And if you'll turn in the inspired inerrant and infallible word of God to 2nd Timothy 316 please. 2nd Timothy 316. It's one of the famous passages about what the scriptures say about uh, themselves. Have you ever heard, of course, I think most of you have heard this. I won't ask it. I'll just say you've probably heard, how about that, of uh, the movie at least, uh, Mutiny on the Bounty. Uh, came from a book as well. Um, Clark Gable, the 30s movie. I think Marlon Brando in the 50s or 60s, uh, worth watching. Captain Blythe has a mutiny on his hands and uh, it's really intense and dramatic, but what you probably don't know about Mutiny on the Bounty is it's actually from a true story uh, rooted in history and it's really interesting uh, as you look at when the mutineers took over and uh, what happened was they ran the ship aground (laughs) and they had to, to, to jump ship, they got as many things out of the ship as they could and and they made landfall on an island kind of out toward Australia, Polynesian-type island, uh, called Pitcairn Island. And the reason I mention this to you is there are some British sailors, of course, who went ashore. Uh, there were some, some women with them. And, of course, there were native uh, people on the island. And uh, what happened was when they got there... Is, it, you know, it was very primitive, so they had to work really hard to make an existence there. But it was a miserable existence. And the reason why was not just the conditions. One of the British sailors discovered or realized how to distill alcohol. <laughs> and so they started making whiskey on Pitcairn Island, and it just became this drunken hellhole of violence and murder, this awful place to live. Until one day, one of the, uh, the the sailors, his name was Alexander Smith, was rummaging through a chest that had been brought uh, from the ship and found a Bible. And Alexander Smith started reading the Bible. And Alexander Smith, through his Bible reading, and I would imagine through his upbringing in England as well... Um, came to know Christ and, and basically gained a relationship with God. And Alexander Smith didn't stop there. He started reading the Bible to the, the entire group. And what happened is several of them be, 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 began to come to know Christ. And, and they started a little church on Pitcairn Island. And, and the next thing we know, and the reason we know about this, was several years later when the American vessel Topaz landed on Pitcairn Island. Do you know what they found? Not a drunken hellhole of violence and murder. Uh, One of the biographers says, quote, uh, It was a community without drunkenness, where God was worshipped and His commandments honored. Uh, Basically saying that this island had become a model community. Why? All because someone found a Bible. Because the Bible is not an ordinary book. In our Scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, we read these words. All Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is inspired and useful. It's inspired and useful. Now, we need to ask a question this morning in the uniqueness of the Bible. What does it mean that the Scriptures are inspired? Literally, it means that they, the, 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 the Word of God, the Scriptures, the books of the Bible, down to the words, are breathed out by God Himself. Therefore, they are precious and they are of God and from God and unique, you see. And, are, and the authority comes from the fact that they are breathed out uh, by God. And, and we would not deny, uh, and the Scriptures do not deny, that you can learn a lot about the nature of the glory of God, the power of God, etc., through, through nature, right? In fact, there, there's so much to be learned about God that there is a God and, 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 and kind of what He's like in His glory and power that we literally don't have an excuse to not realize there's a God. In fact, the Romans 1 says we suppress this, meaning it's, it's really sometimes a, an emotional drain to be atheistic simply because you have to deny, deny, deny what you see and and, and what you kind of vibrate with concerning the glory and wonder of the creation. But we we know this, that we can't know all about God and His ways and His love and His grace by looking at a tree or even a a snow-capped mountain or, or even the surf breaking on rocks and and in a beautiful and dramatic display of, uh, of beauty. No, to know God personally. And His ways, His truth. This is only attained through the revelation from God Himself. Who wants us to know what He is like. And furthermore, through the main character and the main point of this book, the Messiah, Jesus, wants us to know Him Personally. And this revelation of truth from God to us is is a powerful, amazing gift. Now, it's God breathed. It's inspired. Therefore, it's unique. What did this process look like? Well, I'll tell you, nobody went out somewhere and found golden plates on the ground. There's no mystical thing about inspiration where poof, all of a sudden, there was the Word of God. No, one of the things that I love about the Bible is that it was given through men in the context of their real lives, their real relationship with God, so that when you... The Bible's not just a collection of sayings, um shakalaka, you know? It's not this otherworldly mystical thing, although there's so much that is mystical or mysterious, certainly, about God and, and, and His being, etc., that, that we are yet to know. I'm not saying there's nothing mysterious, but it's not that, that kind of mystical, it's not just, just wisdom literature. It is actually rooted through people's lives. But what God was doing in these people's lives and what He was doing through them for us to have the Scriptures is what the process of inspiration is about. And we read in Second Peter one twenty one this scripture. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of men, although it was brought by men, right? It never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Meaning there was something that God was doing in these people for them to therefore convey the Word of God. That it did not come from the will of man, it came from the will of God, as the Holy Spirit carried them along. And it's great because when we read the Scriptures, we identify with the people who wrote it. And it's real. And God perfectly utilized these people to convey his very word in such a way that it has the feel of their personality on the one hand, right? Paul's writings feel different from Daniel's writings, for instance. Has a sense of their personality on the one hand and a sense of the personalness of God and what he is like and what it's like to know him, you see. The scriptures are not antiseptic, detached. Teachings or writings but those that connect with real people because they are indeed organically by the power of the Spirit given through real people to real people about the redemption of real people. It's wonderful. 2 Timothy 3.16 affirms that the Scriptures are just as God wanted them written. All Scripture is God-breathed. It is breathed out by God. It is inspired by God down to the words. All Scripture. God don't breathe no junk. <laughs> All right? God breathes His Word. And isn't it interesting how people say, well, if man's in the equation, it can't be God. Who are you to say that? Is God not God enough to utilize Men for His purposes? Isn't the very point of our redemption that God indeed has come to us as a man? God indeed has spoken to men through men. Do we deny, the, the at least intellectually, the power of God to accomplish His Word through men? Please don't fall for that if man's in the equation. It can't be the Word of God stuff. Thank God that it is the Word of God through Men carried along by the Holy Spirit who write it in such a way that it grips our souls and touches right where we are and leads us to write what we need because God Himself has breathed it out. And because they are inspired, God breathed, the scriptures are inerrant. Meaning it's not it isn't junk. It's it's not it's, and they're infallible. They're not going to lead you into error, and you know, I know, you can go to the bookstore and all these books, and this Graham Earhart guy or whatever, the chair of the uh, religion department in North Carolina, please don't buy his books. Even his secular peers hated his scholarly work and, and dissed it, and then he turned it into four books about the non-reliability of the Bible and all the problems about God. And basically the church is so dumbed down today that we can't even recognize a bad argument. And I'm answering all kinds of questions about these books that even the secular critics don't like. Psalm 19.7, the Word of God, the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. And you know, all these contradictions in the Bible, you know, look a little closer. See what's actually a contradiction and what's really not a contradiction. I, I am stupefied by what secular people call contradictions, and they have no knowledge of the Bible. Like, you know, you ought to read the Bible before you start teaching about it. Because what you're claiming over here is not even what the Bible says. I won't get into examples. But Richard Dawkins, one of the famous atheists, used an example that I just wanted to scream. Because it's, I, I pulled out my Bible and I said, well, that's really interesting. And that's not, a, that's not at all what it said. We should approach the Bible, therefore, because it's God-breathed. It's exactly what He wanted. It's reliable. It is infallible. We should approach the Bible with reverence. And with great thanksgiving that we have revelation from God. We're sinners. We can't get this stuff on our own. We have major barriers. We can't even know our own hearts. Much less the the divine person. Sidney Collette, in his book, All About the Bible, talks about the uniqueness of the Scriptures. And I I love this. Maybe some of y'all have seen this. And I I didn't count, and I'm not going to... You know, maybe I should have put this on the screen, but this is pretty amazing. That... um, there are no less than, and, and there are debatable, you know, some of these, and, but there are no less than 333 prophecies in the Old Testament that center on the person of the Messiah. Maybe you could whittle that down to 300 if you really tried. But a lot, all right? There are no less than 333 prophecies in the Old Testament which center on the person of the Messiah, every one of which relating to his earthly life has been fulfilled to the letter. Now we say, well, duh, you know, we know that there's prophecy. We've read the fulfillment. Okay, it gets better. Mathematicians have calculated the odds of all these prophecies being fulfilled through the life of Jesus. And you must remember that these were not self-fulfilled prophecies. Some of them he did and thus fulfilled the prophecies. Many of them, in fact, at least half of them have to do with the actions of others around him and and the responses of others around him and the attitudes of others that that you know he's not that's what they choose to do um you know for instance that they didn't break his legs psalm 22 they didn't break his legs when he was crucified that they gambled for his clothing underneath the cross go to psalm 22 later you'll see all that um in the hundreds of years before the death of Jesus. Now, this, this mathematical number of probability, let me tell you something. I just can't tell you how many... I should have counted the zeros. Maybe I'll go back and count the zeros before the second service. It's like three lines of zeros across an 8.5 by 11, meaning that it's, it's just impossible. Gabillions. One in a gabillion. One scholar notes, That they prophesied events which did not take place until centuries after the prophecies were written. And they prophesied them in such detail that it would have been absolutely impossible for their prophecies to have been fulfilled unless they had received a revelation from God. And please understand that the people who loved Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53 about, you know, the the suffering servant, they did not love Jesus primarily, I mean, in the New Testament, we see the Jewish authorities, I mean, setting themselves up against Jesus. So there's not some conspiracy against the people who had the scrolls and the New Testament. It's amazing that in spite of what people wanted to hear or see or believe, that is what happened and that is what was verified and that is verified by people outside of the Christian faith as well. And you think about all the different people who wrote the, the Bible. Roughly 1,500 years from the first writing, the book, the Torah, the, the books of Moses, we call it the Pentateuch now, the first five books of Moses, to the Revelation written by John. Uh, roughly 1,500 years is how the, the span of time that the Bible was, was written. You think about. That span of time, you think about all the different people and the different places, and there was no internet or phones that they wrote from. You think about the different languages. There's three languages in the Bible, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. You think about the different cultures from which these people came, and particularly when you get into the New Testament, and how it all fits together. How the unity of the Scriptures and and the unity of the message about the Gospel, the the Messiah, look, you couldn't coordinate this unity if you sat down in the same town, in the same room practically, with people from different cultures, backgrounds, languages over time, uh, to be able to coordinate something like this. It is amazing. The Scriptures and their uniqueness. All Scripture is God-breathed. Breathed Breathed out, inspired by God. Incredible. And then the style of the Bible. I I love what the Westminster Confession of Faith just talks about. And this is maybe one of the weaker of the, the thoughts on it, but it is noteworthy. Chapter 1 of the Westminster Confession speaks about the, quote, heavenliness of the subject matter, the efficacy or the fact that it, it's powerful, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the unity of all the parts, the scope of the whole, and many the many other incomparable excellencies and in the entire perfection thereof are demonstrations that it is abundantly and it abundantly evidences itself to be the word of God, All Scripture is God-breathed from God, through people, to be inspired, errant And I'll, I won't get into translations and that type of thing today. Trust me, I'll just say this, that different translations come from different manuscript sources. And some translations have interpretation in them. But whether it's the NIV or the ESV or the New American Standard, I assure you there are no significant doctrinal variances between these translations. People say, well, there's different translations. The Word of God can't be inerrant. We're saying the, the original manuscripts, as given by God, were inerrant, and we have something so faithful. i tell you a great example was, um, you know, the, about the little boy, It's was about... 40 years ago now, maybe 50, I'm losing track of time. I'll have to look that one up for the second service too. This is a practice sermon, y'all do know that. Um, little boy, little shepherd boy, uh, out in the, the, the desert area there south of Jerusalem, and the, he, he threw, he heard a breaking of pots. He threw a, a rock, and this rock, little rock had gone through a little hole in the ground, and it had broken something that was in the hole, and he went and dug around, and he just dug up this This there was this cave full of, of containers of scrolls. We call them the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, Andy, when was this? 19 what? Do you know? The 40s. Thank you. So, so do the math. Thank you. It's good to have scholars in the midst. He's, you know, he's, he's checking my facts. Y'all know that. Um, but anyway, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and what's so great about the Dead Sea Scrolls is this is when our secular... People who say, oh, the Bible's just like any other book. The Bible, the, the Quran, the, the Confucius, is all the same. They're very confused about that. But, but anyway, they said, this is it, man. We're gonna, we we got the Dead Sea Scrolls. We're, we're going to show you once and for all that the Bible we have today is not like the Bible. Because we knew that one went way back. Way back. You know what they found? The book of Isaiah was actually in its entirety, much to the dismay of our liberal critics, it was exactly what we have. There was no... I mean, if they would even agree that there, there was no substantial difference whatsoever from the Bible that you're reading in English in its, in its, down to its doctrinal meaning and down to the words in Hebrew of the Hebrew uh, Bibles that we have. The Bible is... Unified. It is over time. It is preserved by God. It is unique. All scripture is God breathed. Is it amazing to own a copy of this? It's amazing. So, what is your attitude toward the Bible? How do you approach the scriptures? Um, to read and meditate on the revelation from God to man, about Him being a personal God and personal salvation through the Jews. And the story of redemption is an incredible thing. To read and meditate on it is life-changing. To hear sound preaching on it and sound teaching on it is transformational. Isaiah 48, The grass withers and the flowers fall. Because men are like grass, and their opinions are like grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Matthew five eighteen, Jesus says, I tell you the truth until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest jot or tittle shall be removed from this law until all be fulfilled. Jesus affirmed the reliability of the Scriptures and the and the eternality of the Scriptures. John 17, 17, Jesus Himself said, O Father, as he prayed for his disciples, O Father, sanctify, sanctify them by the truth. Thy word is truth. God uses his inspired, inerrant, infallible word. Psalm 19:7, just take this in. The law of the Lord is perfect. Converting the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. Do you see the personal application of the perfection of the Word of God? Let me go back to that last one. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commandments of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. They are more precious than gold. More precious than gold, folks. Yes, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey to us. Sweeter than the honey of the honeycomb. And by them is your servant warned. And in keeping them is great reward but finally in our text the Word of God is not only inspired which means what God breathed it's useful all scripture is God breathed inspired and is useful in other words it's not just to be adored for us to just sit around and talk about inerrancy all day and not read our Bibles and not seek the living God through the Bible it's truncated. It's useful and powerful to transform us and thoroughly equip us for everything God will call us to do in our lives. And um, and I will come back and I will take this part of the passage at some point and preach on it. But if you're on the city, I'm going to place the whole thing this week. You can sign up in the lobby if you want to get it about how the inspired word is useful for teaching correction rebuke rebuking and training in righteousness that the man of god may be thoroughly equipped for every good work and so let me just finish by reading these words slowly all scripture is god breathed and is useful for teaching rebuking correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Folks, man of, word of man or word of God? Word of God himself. Through man, to man. The perfect, powerful word of God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you help us to receive your word? Would you help us to revere it? Would you help us to read and meditate upon it? because it is Your very words to us down to the words. Would You help us to know You through the Word, through the Gospel? Would You help us to live out that good news, that main theme of the Bible, and grow us in Your Word, impact us by Your Word, transform us? that we might be transformative agents in our world at this time in history. And We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.